to the Healing Health Podcast. I'm Dr. Renee Beale. The COVID-19 pandemic has radically changed the experiences of healthcare consumers and placed unprecedented demand and strain on our healthcare workforce. How do we maintain high quality service while simultaneously improving the way we care for our carers? Professor Linda Sweet and Dr. Sarah Holton from Deakin University's Institute for Health Transformation are here with me today to discuss these challenges. Both are researchers in the Centre for Quality and Patient Safety Research Western Health Partnership in the Institute for Health Transformation. Linda is Chair of Midwifery and a member of the COVID-19 Maternity or COVMAT study team which explored experiences of maternity care during the COVID-19 pandemic. While Sarah has led several COVID-19 related research projects as a senior research fellow, including one of the first Australian studies to investigate the psychosocial impact of COVID-19 on hospital clinical staff. In this episode, we'll uncover the pandemic's impact and some of the positive changes we could make when we listen to the feedback of those on health's front line. Join us now in the conversation. Professor Linda Sweet and Dr. Sarah Holton from Deakin University's Institute for Health Transformation are here with me now. Yeah, hi Renee, it's lovely to be here. Hi Renee, thanks for having us. So Linda and Sarah, you've spent a considerable amount of time researching the pandemic's effects on the healthcare workforce. Perhaps we can begin with you, Linda. How did you conduct your research into maternity care and what have you found? Yeah, so I got involved very early on um, when the pandemic first hit with three different groups of um, midwifery academic researchers. So we've done a number of different studies. So one really only looked at women and their partners' experiences. So I'll put that one aside. But the other two did focus on the workforce Um, One was looking only at midwives and their capacity to deliver women-centred care. The other big project, the COFMAT study, looked at five different cohorts. So we looked at women, their birth partners, uh, midwives, doctors and student Uh, midwifery students. So that study we put out as a national survey and we had over 4,000 responses from that. From that, people were then also able to um, self-nominate to participate in an interview. So another about 78 interviews, I think, across all all the cohorts were also undertaken. So that allowed us to be able to explore in a lot more detail the individual's experiences. So we were looking at the provision of maternity care as opposed to their personal well-being. What we did find was that all of the cohorts experienced anxiety, anxiety around the capacity to to provide the care that they wanted and for women and their partners, anxiety around not getting the care that they wanted or needed. So, you know, there certainly was levels, you know, much higher levels of anxiety for all five groups of people um, across the study. One of the things that was really interesting is we did ask uh, how well they thought they were able to provide care and how well they thought the care was provided, you know, for the the recipient and the and the caregiver. And there was statistically significant differences where the healthcare workers thought they were doing a good you know good job in the in the pandemic restrictions. Um, but the women and partners felt it wasn't good enough for what they wanted. And that, you know, across such a large cohort uh, did reach statistical significance. So that was a really interesting finding. Definitely. And Sarah, you've worked with hospital staff. 
Can you outline your study and your findings? Yeah, so we were one of the first Australian studies to look at the impact of um, the pandemic on healthcare workers. And we've surveyed over 3,500 hospital clinical staff, so doctors, midwives, nurses, allied health staff from four health services in Victoria, so Western Health, um, Epworth, which is a private health um, health service here in, in Melbourne, and um, Eastern and Monash Health, and also a health service in Denmark, which was really interesting, so we could compare our findings. Um, and we so we asked them about what sort of impact the pandemic had been having on their well-being and also on their work and personal lives. And we found that about a quarter of the staff that we surveyed were experiencing um, psychological distress. So we assessed their symptoms of depression, anxiety and stress. And we also found that their well-being got worse as the pandemic continued. And nurses and midwives were actually more distressed than the other staff, so doctors and allied health staff. And they also spoke about the impact that um, the pandemic was having on their personal lives. So they were really concerned about infecting their colleagues and, their, and bringing home the virus to their family and their friends. And they said they tried to avoid their family and friends. They, um, they also spoke about the impact that wearing PPE, so personal protection equipment, had on them. They said that it made them really dehydrated. They said it was really difficult to build rapport with their patients if they were, you know, fully masked up and had their, their face shields on. Um, staff who were pregnant were really concerned about their pregnancy because early on in the pandemic we didn't know a lot about how pregnancy might be affected by the virus. And they also um, talked about the difficulties they had managing their work and family responsibilities, so particularly in Melbourne where we went into long lockdowns and school um, went to remote learning. Staff that had kids at school were really concerned about, you know, coming to, to work at the hospital and leaving their children at home while they were doing remote um, learning. But they... Interesting, they also mentioned some positive aspects of the pandemic. So they spoke about how it really created sort of a sense of teamwork and togetherness. And they also said, not surprisingly, that they had learnt a lot about infection control and prevention. Well, I'd imagine we've all learnt a lot about <laughs> infection control and prevention now. So you mentioned Denmark, but I wanted to open up to both of you. Have these types of research studies been common across the international community during the pandemic? And if so, how do your results here in Australia compare with overseas findings? Uh, yeah, so I'm a deputy editor of Women and Birth, uh, in, an international journal for midwifery. And we uh, obviously started getting a lot of submissions around the COVID-19 pandemic and the impact on, on women partners, midwives, that sort of stuff. So uh, I was the responsible editor for a COVID-19 special edition. So had to go through and, you know, manage that. And we're still getting articles submitted now on the same topics. So the findings were very, very similar um, across the world in, in multiple countries uh, to the ones that we found. Yeah, I guess we also found that, you know, healthcare workers all around the world are experiencing distress during the pandemic. But we compared the nurses and midwives in Australia to our, their colleagues in Denmark. We had a, um, a health service there that participated in our study. And interestingly, the Australian nurses and midwives were experiencing more distress than those than their colleagues in Denmark, which we were a bit surprised about because when we started the study in sort of mid-2020, um, there weren't a lot of cases in Australia or even deaths. So we were expecting that the Australian nurses and midwives would actually be feeling a lot better <laughs> than their Danish colleagues. Um, but we found, obviously, that they were a bit more distressed. And we think that might be because Denmark went into lockdown quite 
early and introduced a lot of um, precautionary sort of measures. And typically Danes have quite, you know, um, a sense of confidence, I guess, in their government that they're going to do the right thing and everything's going to be okay. And I guess they were also uh, seeing what was happening in the rest of Europe close to them, you know, Italy, Spain, the UK, they were obviously having a lot of um, cases and, and deaths. So we think that perhaps the Australian nurses and midwives experienced a bit more distress because it was still unknown in Australia what was going to happen at that stage. And there was lots of media reports about the horrible things that were happening to healthcare workers overseas and the high death rate amongst healthcare workers. So we think that that sort of anxiety and, un, and the stress about the unknown was what why our Australian um, nurses and midwives experienced more distress at, early in the pandemic compared to their Danish colleagues. Certainly our anticipation mm. of awful things that might happen to exactly. us is often worse than the actual <laughs> yes, situation. That's right, yeah. I think because it was such an unknown thing for our generation, you know, we hadn't been um, through a pandemic before and didn't really have processes put in place in order to deal with that. So I know the participants in, in our, my studies uh, certainly talked about the chaos of the constantly changing rules and regulations and, and every day they were being told something different and so that was really, really challenging for them to keep up to date. And I know certainly the midwives that were trying to deliver women-centred care, you know, they spoke of having to push the boundaries, the rules, in order to be able to deliver the care that they wanted to be able to deliver that made them proud to be a midwife, you know, um, and they found that was really, really hard. That's completely understandable. So one exciting thing about your research is that you've gathered data from different professionals across um, the healthcare sector. And since you're both members of the Institute for Health Transformation, you can easily work together if you want to, um, to compare these experiences and whether they're varied across the sector. So I just wanted to know, have you found, for example, that midwives and their experiences have differed from those working in allied health? So, yeah, we've certainly found that not all healthcare workers had the same experience during the pandemic. I mean, they all experienced some distress, but nurses and midwives particularly experienced a lot of um, lot more distress and had higher levels of depression, anxiety and stress symptoms um, during the pandemic. And this, we've surveyed uh, healthcare workers now at three time points during the pandemic, and this trend is continuing that nurses and midwives are always the experiencing more distress than their colleagues in the other um health fields. And we think that, well, we know that nurses and midwives, even before the pandemic, experience, you know, high levels of occupational stress. They work long hours, they work shift work, you know, they're at the bedside, they're caring for patients, their families, they, you know, they deal with patient death um, a lot. So, you know, it's a high stress um, role to be in anyway. But we think that perhaps they experienced more distress during the pandemic because they were by, you know, they were having that intense and sustained sort of patient contact. They were vulnerable to infection from um, patients that had COVID. And so that sort of prolonged sort of contact with COVID patients, the fear and the unknown about being um, infected themselves or transmitting the virus, having to wear PPE in their, all, you know, their entire shift. And, and early on in the pandemic, concerns about whether PPE was available um, has, is sort of that all of that sort of has contributed to their high levels of distress and anxiety. We didn't look at allied health um, in our any of the studies that I've done, but certainly even the difference between midwives and doctors was evident. So the doctors talked about acknowledging the anxiety of women and their families, and but you know they were still able to perform their duties, you know their work. But I think for midwives, you know midwifery is a really relationship based. Um, 
model of care and it's a very, very close model of care and it's very hard to provide midwifery care at 1.5 metre distance or, as you say, in the full um, personal protective equipment, you know, face masks. You don't get to see people's visual cues of whether they're happy or not because you can't tell if they're sad or, or smiling under the face masks. And I think the midwives spoke of the challenges that that gave um, and also things like... Um, you know, having to limit uh, contact to 10 minutes. You know, you can't do a quality consultation with 10 minutes of face-to-face -face time. And so the challenges that they were put under by having to do some uh, components of care over the phone first and limit the amount of, you know, face-to-face um, -face contact or physical contact was really challenging for the midwives because it wasn't the care that they wanted to be delivering and they knew it wasn't the care that the women needed. For sure, and I think... A lot of people gravitate towards having a midwife because they provide that really hands-on personalised care versus an obstetrician who might have a 10-minute consultation with a patient. And so I can understand that. Health shouldn't be hard. If your organisation is facing a complex health challenge, consider collaborating with the Institute for Health Transformation. Our researchers are renowned for their expertise in co-designing, testing and evaluating real-world health solutions with lasting impact. To find out more, visit iht.deakin.edu.au. Linda, you actually mentioned you surveyed midwifery students as part of your research as well. I just wondered if you could expand upon how the pandemic has affected their experiences and their ability to complete placements. Yeah, absolutely. So the data we collected was between March and June in 2020, so very, very early on. And at that point, a lot of the placements were just cancelled. You know, the governments didn't know what to do, the health services didn't know what to do. And when you had um, the social restrictions of, you know, only limited number of people in a small consultation room, the first person that got removed was the student. So the students really did struggle to meet all of their midwifery placement experiences and their clinical hours. And so there was a backlog of needing to catch up. So the students were very distressed. They were distressed at not being able to participate. You know, they would go to a clinic but not go in with the woman and some of them could um, got the women to call them on the phone. So they were sort of present through the telephone, but not physically there seeing and experiencing and being a part of the consultations. Um, birth as well. So, you know, even um, a lot of the students were restricted from going into birthing rooms in the, in the early days. That's got better and we've accepted that. The problem is if you don't let the students get their placement, you don't then get the staff that you need the following year and you have this big domino effect. So um, the students also expressed distress around seeing women not getting the care that they felt that they should have. And so the students were challenged by how they dealt with that as well. We also surveyed um, some nursing and midwifery undergraduate students uh, during the pandemic. We, I think we had about almost over 600 uh, students. And similar to what Linda mentioned, they also expressed concerns about their placements being cancelled. They also said the ones that did get to go on placement, that they were really concerned about coming home from the hospital and infecting their family members or their housemates, whoever they were living with at the time. Um, 
and they said that they were concerned that when their placements were cancelled that they weren't going to be ready to start work as a nurse or a midwife, you know, once their degree had actually finished. But they also said that, you know, they, they had to adapt to new ways of learning and there were some positive aspects to that as well as the, obviously the negative aspects of not being able to go to the hospitals and do their, their on-site placements. So that's what exactly what I was going to say, that as a student the best part of placement is to gain some confidence in in that environment that is really a bit scary and unknown. And if you don't get to spend time in that environment, then you can come out graduating feeling a little underprepared. There were students in our study that also mentioned that in those early months that they weren't given access to the appropriate PPE. They weren't being fit tested for the N95 masks. Therefore, they couldn't go on placement, you know, if it was offered because, you know, who was taking the responsibility for that, the organisation, the health organisations or the universities. So there was challenges around that. That's all been resolved now, but it certainly was something that was challenging in those early months. And the other thing that the students talked of was the flip to online learning. So they were isolated. You know, they weren't with their peers. They would have really short, you know, notice of cancellations of placements. Um, and, and the best way that they found to communicate was through each other on social media um, because... The universities and the hospitals was ever-changing chaos of what they're allowed to do and what they're not allowed to do and that those lines of communication were at times problematic. Social media is fantastic for um, those those kinds of peer-to-peer relationships that can be built and obviously that's great skills to have for when they go out in the workforce and they're working together but also obviously misinformation can kind of breed Um, very readily on those platforms as well and so there's a balance between the positive and the negative. The lines of communication I think are so much better. We have a 15-minute Zoom meeting now at the hospital, the health service, where we used to only get like 20 people would go to the in-person meeting across the boardrooms and now we get almost 200 people dialing in every day just to get those updates and you know that you get that quick what I need to know now information which that I think has been a real positive outcome. So we've already spoken about some really important learnings that have come out of your studies. However, I wanted to highlight one aspect in particular, and I think we've sort of vaguely touched on this already, but I thought we could bring out more of it in the conversation, that carers often place their own needs behind those who are in their care. And perhaps some even believe that it's selfish to request resources to support their own well-being. But both of your research studies have provided an avenue for carers to discuss their needs in a safe and acceptable way. Did you have this in mind as an additional outcome when you started your research projects? It wasn't an an intended outcome, um, but I think research participants often find it quite therapeutic to tell you their story. And we only... um, used a survey for our studies because we wanted to minimise the burden on staff because they were obviously in the middle of a pandemic, they were prone care. So it was a really brief online survey. But at the end of the survey, we included a space where they could write free text comments. And it was amazing how many staff actually took that opportunity to write about their experience and tell us what they were feeling. I think... One good example, and it's about women rather than the health professionals, but I think it goes both ways. So in our big study, we had over 3,500 women do the survey. 953 
nominated for an interview. <laughs> Obviously, we couldn't interview that many, but everyone wanted to share their story, you know, like it was really popular. So even within our midwifery cohorts and our medical cohorts, we did get probably about 20, 25% nominating to participate in those interviews if, they, if we needed them to. That sounds like a researcher's dream. Like, is that unusual <laughs> in your yeah. line of research? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I think another one of the interesting things, Renee, too, was early on with our first survey that we do with um, healthcare workers, less than 10% actually said that they were thinking about resigning or leaving the health service, which we were really surprised about. And I think it comes back to your point that you're making that sometimes healthcare workers feel like they have, you know, sort of a moral obligation almost to continue and that they'd be letting their colleagues down if they were to leave. Um, it almost may have been at the time too that, you know, Victoria especially was in a bit of a, you know, lockdown was a horrible situation and people were losing their jobs so maybe they also thought well if I leave you know stop being a nurse what else am I going to do um, but it'll be interesting to see as we analyze the data from our subsequent surveys whether that percentage has changed because there is a lot of chat in the media especially at the moment about you know there's a mass exodus of healthcare workers and we're and Australia is facing shortages so it'll be interesting to track that um, over the time to see how that plays out. We haven't seen this trend that the US have where there's been kind of the great resignation, if you like. We haven't seen that across um, all of our workforce sectors, but it'll be interesting to see if there's any difference between the healthcare sector and other sectors, say, um, across Australia yet. I think having the conversations I have at the exec level in the health service I'm working, um, they've found that whilst the physical number of people hasn't changed so much. Some of them, certainly the nurses and midwives, have gone part-time just to reduce that stress and give them that little bit more flexibility um, because they're still dealing, you know, we are still in the middle of the pandemic um, and all those issues that we found out about in 2020 still, <laughs> still exist today and that's, you know, two years on and people are getting tired. Yeah, for sure. So Maternity care has always struck me as an area of healthcare that's really trying to focus on providing excellent person-centred care. That is placing the individual who needs the care at the centre of all decisions and giving them control over their care. The pandemic must have constrained the scope of person-centred care. Was this borne out in the data that you collected and did this give you an insight into the importance of person-centred care moving forward? One of the big things that we found was the limitations on visitor restrictions and particularly like antenatal appointments, women were not allowed to have their support person with them. So fathers or you know, birth partners really felt that they missed out on the whole experience. And so that's something that um, we, we got in very quickly. We were very lucky with that. And with our lead researcher, Zoe Bradfield, she did a lot of um, policy briefs to governments. And already that's been put into Western Australians' maternity policy that, you, you know, birth partners cannot be restricted from entering the birthing room or being with women um, during their appointments. So that's a really good outcome of that early work. I think with regards to women choosing their models of care, you know, because there was such limited amount of contact and, and, and reduced number of consultations, um, they didn't get the care that they wanted or they might not have known what their choices were. Certainly for those women that were very fearful of coming to hospital and contracting COVID, um, a lot of a lot of places that provide home birth were inundated with requests. So we had, you know, the health service we work at offers a publicly funded home birth service and they were getting 
daily requests for women to change their model of care so that they didn't have to birth in the hospital. But we, we just didn't have the capacity to take on more because those midwives already had a full caseload. And home birth really requires that relationship to develop over time. It's not something you can just do a week before you're going to give birth. Um, it's not you know, it's not a safe way to plan and prepare for birth in those situations. So um, there were certainly women that would go to the privately practising midwives that were able to, um, to to offer that home birth so that they kept out of the health services. And there were certainly changes of venues of where some of that care took place. So it was done in the community rather than in the hospitals as well. So Sarah, your study um, that you completed with Western Health was actually scaled to four other Victorian services and one in Denmark, as you mentioned. That's a real testament to how well received (laughs) your study actually was. I'm just wondering how you achieved that level of scalability so quickly. Yeah, it was it was amazing. It's, it hasn't happened before. It was it was a fantastic result. We actually started just with nurses and midwives at Western Health, and then the allied health staff and the and the doctors got wind of what we were doing and said, "Can we join in too? This sounds really important." Um, and then, because Deakin has these amazing partnerships with health services, we were able to invite other health services to participate and really quickly get things moving and we also obviously have connections um, with the health service in Denmark so I just think it was we wouldn't have got that sort of um, access to that range of health services that quickly if it hadn't been for the partnerships that Deakin has and especially in a time sensitive uh, situation like the pandemic where we wanted to get information and data out there quickly so that health services could take action um, if required about you know their their staff's well-being it was it was it was really good I just wanted to open up to to you Linda at this point to make a comment on the really strong partnerships because I think that that is you know one of the areas where Deakin really excel in terms of allowing access to a range of different partnerships absolutely I think it's quite phenomenal so just in our school of nursing and midwifery you know we have uh, multiple chairs of nursing and myself as chair of midwifery across about six different health services I think Um, and all of them are really well funded because it's not only the the professor that's the role but they also have research fellows or senior research fellows working alongside them so it really enables us to do a good job rather than just be a figurehead if that makes sense so I think it's quite unique Um, I don't know of any other university across Australia that has such a strong network and because the clinical chair positions are all embedded in individual partnerships at the, the health service level we have direct and easy access to to um, you know patients clients women staff etc so I think that's made our research really effective and, and really responsive and when you think about it you know they say evidence-based practice it takes about 10 years to translate evidence into practice We've been able to get that happening really quickly because of those connections and networks. And, you know, the hospital services, they're they're employing us to be there and do this kind of work for them. So they're very responsive to the things that we have to say from the research that we do. And I think it's great too that there's such a range of health services that we have partnerships with. You know, some in metropolitan areas, some are in regional areas like Barwon Health here in Geelong. Um, and some are private, so we we get a nice range across, you know, of uh, staff that we can um, re- do research with, and also patients. So it's 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 great for our research. That must give you a lot of confidence as a researcher, having a broad range of different um, organisations to be able to work with and survey. Um, just the depth of the information that you're then analysing, you must be really confident in some of your outcomes. Yeah, it, it helps us think that our results are generalisable and reliable and that, you know, we're actually painting a true picture of what's actually happening. 
I think one of the other strengths is if you look at the staff skill sets, so we're not you know, all nurses or midwives. We have people with psychology backgrounds and um, public health backgrounds and uh, clinical psychology. So I think that collectively in those clinical chair positions, um, we, we've got plenty of people we go to for different skill sets and different, different points of view, different ways of understanding, which I think is a, a valuable asset. Sarah, in the future, how could Australia or even just Victoria better monitor the well-being of its healthcare workforce? This is, this is my, my new baby. <laughs> I'm really, um, I guess one of the really interesting things we found when we came to do our study was that we didn't have any data to compare what things were like before the pandemic or if there was data. It was really, you know, small single-site studies that had been done in one point in time. We really need to collect longitudinal data about the well-being health and well-being of healthcare workers so we can monitor it over time and see if it changes you know we don't know what's going to happen at the end of pandemic we don't know what will happen after the pandemic so we're um in the currently putting together a big grant from through the nhmrc we're hoping to get some funding to be able to monitor and collect data about healthcare worker well-being over time because we think that's really important because without that information health health services can't put initiatives in place to support their staff and retain their staff which which could be a big problem uh, in the in the future i think in victoria they've got um huge amount of government funding at the moment for building new hospitals. We're getting the new Melton Hospital, new Point Cook Community Hospital, the new women's and children's here in Geelong. So over the next five years, oh, the new Footscray Hospital as well. Um, so there, there's going to be a huge requirement for additional staff. So we want to do whatever we can to retain the staff we've currently got, as well as build the, the future workforce that we need to be able to provide the care that Victorians need over the next five to 10 years. Fantastic. Sounds super exciting. <laughs> to finish, a question for you both. Are there sectors within healthcare, such as the aged care sector, that aren't currently being monitored but perhaps should? Yeah, exactly. That's a really good point. We, our, Most of our research is focused on hospital clinical staff. We have done some work with community health service staff um, here in Victoria, both clinical and non-clinical staff, because we thought it was really important to see how the pandemic was affecting staff that don't have that sort of face-to-face -face patient contact or might be in a, you know, sort of a HR role or a finance role or something like that. So, um, but yes, aged care has not really been uh, studied. And also we're quite interested, um, we've put in some, uh, an application to do a study about palliative care staff, because we know that people haven't been presenting for, you know, their regular health checkups. We know that the incidence of cancer is increasing and that's obviously placing a bigger burden on palliative care staff because patients are coming to them a lot sicker than what they would have been um, originally. So we think there might be some impact there. So, yeah, there certainly are other um, groups of healthcare workers that would be great to investigate. I know through my own studies that there is some data coming out from the aged care sector that perhaps some of the current workers in that area are actually leaving the profession which is not what we want we actually want to retain people in in that um, area and and also to attract new people so obviously attracting new people to palliative care and also attracting new people to aged care and I'm sure that both your projects and anything that you do in the future will help um, to empower staff and obviously consumers as well which we've spoken um, about today too to actually have the best of all experiences in healthcare. So thanks so much for talking to us today. Thank you, Renee. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks, Renee.
This podcast is presented by Deakin University's Institute for Health Transformation, creating research for right now and addressing today's most complex health challenges through partnership and collaboration. If you'd like more information about any of the topics or researchers featured in this podcast series, simply head to iht.deakin.edu.au.